when we continue our look at Christ in the Old Testament that we started a few weeks ago, <clears throat> tying into Acts as Paul makes this connection that what he was being persecuted for was by proclaiming the hope of Israel. That is, that Paul saw in Jesus Christ and Paul saw in the crucifixion, the resurrection, and in Pentecost, the fulfillment of everything that was promised in the Old Testament. As Jesus said, when Moses wrote, he wrote about me, that is Jesus. And so we want to learn to read the Old Testament rightly. We, and the only way then we can do that, given what Jesus said, and even what Paul is saying, is that we read the Old Testament in such a way that we see Christ. That we learn to look through the stories of the Old Testament and out to Christ. That we don't limit the horizon, if you will, of our vision to the characters in the story themselves. Now, it doesn't mean we overlook the characters of the story, that we make it all allegory or something like that. This is real history. We don't deny the historicity of these stories and these events, and we don't deny that they had real implications and that they were stories unto themselves. Indeed, they were. But they, were, they are also for us portals, if you will, by which we enter into the broader story, the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, but so much of the history of the Old Testament was in God's patience, in his slow cooking approach to things. Again, he calls Abram, and then it's 2,000 years later that we get Christ. So he was done, there was not a sense of urgency as we consider urgency in God. He was willing to slow cook, if you will, the old covenant and bring the Lord Jesus Christ. But that in this slow process, rhythms and habits and narratives are established for the people of God by which they will be trained to value certain things, to think of certain things, uh, to, that as a people, they might be prepared for the coming of that great day, even which we considered in Matthew chapter 3, but which I love particularly in John's version of the gospel. Behold, as, as cousin Jesus comes to John and looks to be baptized, and John, looking up and sees him, says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He might, he might as well have said a number of other things. He, he might as well have said, behold the ark that saves us from cataclysmic judgment. He might have said, behold the bronze serpent who lifted up will draw all men to himself. He might have said, you know, behold the Passover lamb. He might have said, behold the, the, the giant killer you know, of, of, uh, of the giant like Goliath. You know, behold our king, King David. You know, he might have said, behold all number of things. He, he, it seems like he could have chosen any picture in the Old Testament and said, behold, there it is. There's the reality. And he chose the predominant one of the Lamb. The Lamb, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But what John is doing in that is he is saying to himself and to those standing by, here in our very presence is the fulfillment of, of these Old Testament stories. Here is the fulfillment of our hope. You know, that, 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 that long-suffering nature of God to fulfill his promises is now coming here to an end in some ways as it's being fulfilled. It's being fulfilled in our very presence. And built in and woven into the story of Israel in the Old Testament were patterns of things like that, of having to confess our sins, right? Yom Kippur, which just happened in the Jewish calendar, uh, a, a couple weeks ago, right? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. 
was a pattern woven into the life of Israel by which they would come year after year acknowledging that they're sinners as a nation as a people and recognizing this sin has to be dealt with and the sacrificial lamb would be slaughtered and the the scapegoat would be taken away out into the wilderness as a gesture of saying there is the lamb that literally takes away our sin there he goes he has our sin on him and there he goes he's literally taking it away out into the wilderness Um, and they would go through this every year building the pattern a story a narrative by which the people would understand who they are and who God is and how we're going to have to relate to God. And so many of these stories do this. Well, the story we're looking at today is a familiar one to us. It goes back, maybe you haven't even read it very much, but we're familiar with it because of our children's, you know, our, our lessons when we were kids. Uh, we knew the story of Noah, you know, who built the ark. No, uh, no, you know, we, we know the songs, you know, they entered the ark twosies, twosies, or however we, we, we sing this. Maybe I only, am I the only one that knows these songs? Uh, Abby can come up here and sing with me. Perhaps I know she knows them. Um, you know, that, that the animals entered in two by two, you know, and, uh, and they entered into the ark. We know these stories, but rarely do we come back to them and think about them. And again, it would probably, probably require multiple sermons, but we're covering four chapters. The, the grand story and kind of condensing it down to one, because our point here is to see Christ in it. How does this story, this grand story of Noah, prepare Israel, prepare us for Christ, and help us to see him better and more clearly? How could we look at Jesus through the lens of Noah and the ark and the flood and understand him better? And how could we look at the story of the flood through the lens of Jesus and understand it better? That's sort of the back and forth that we should use as we're coming to the Old Testament. Well, I want to start with the grand story, and then I want to, I want to see Christ in three ways in uh, the story of Noah and the flood and the ark. But let's think about the story, because as we come to Genesis 6 through 9, we now, in some sense, come to a, a penultimate that is not the ultimate, but the less than ultimate end of a story. We've seen the sin of man in what, as we've already acknowledged, seems to be not a very grand act of plucking fruit from a tree. Adam eats fruit from a tree and damns all of humanity. It seems very dramatic for what was a pretty simple act. But as we've said, there is a lot condensed and compressed down into that act. It wasn't merely taking fruit from a tree. It was cosmic treason, as R.C. Sproul says. I love that phrase. It's always stuck with me. That what happens in the garden is cosmic treason. It doesn't look like it. It looks like an innocent act. It looks like an act of stupidity. It just took fruit. It looked like it would give wisdom, it says. you know. No, we know it's much worse than that. It's cosmic treason. It was the attempt to rip God off the throne and to seat ourselves there, or at least to claim some kind of equality with God. That's what was going on there. You might not have eyes to see it initially, but as we see it play out over the rest of the scriptures, it becomes very clear that that's exactly what it is. Well, in some sense, the whole story of the Bible is condensed down for us from Genesis 3 to Genesis 6. In some sense, we get the whole story of the world, don't we? We have the fall... We have the promise in Genesis 3.15, which we looked at. 
We have time, and we have over the course of time two lines of people, right? Remember, going back to Genesis 3.15, we were told that this is the original promise, right? And I will put enmity between you, God speaking to the serpent, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Right in Genesis 3.15, we are told that one way we can look at the big story of the Bible and the big story of the world is as two lines, two lineages, two offsprings. There's the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And God was going to put enmity between the woman and the serpent and between their two seeds, between their two lines. And we know that the seed of the woman, if you will, that line culminates in the singular seed of the woman, namely Jesus, who will come and crush the head of the serpent while the serpent bruises his singular heel. So we have two main characters. We've got the serpent and Christ, the seed of the woman, but we also have two lineages, two lines. You right now and everyone driving up and down Route 39, 139 or, or Route 100, belong to one of two lines. This is the simplicity of the Bible. There are only two races of people. You either belong to the seed of the woman or you belong to the seed of the serpent. It's one or the other. There's no middle ground. You are one or the other. And so we have the sin, we have the promise, and then we have the developing of these lines. We have the story of Cain and Abel immediately, and then we have Seth replaces Abel by God's provision to Adam and Eve, and then we have the line of Cain and the line of Seth. If you will, a, a, a picture of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. If you follow Cain's line, like one is worse than the next and worse than the next. And Seth's line, at least within that line, are those who walk with the Lord. But then we have, in time, this spiral of humanity. When sin is let go, it spirals and gets to a point where we even have the intermingling of these two lines. And we have the, the, the devolution of humanity spiraling down into chaos and sin until this, the ugliness of sin, the ugliness of the Garden of Eden and the sin of Adam reaches the point of Genesis 6-5, which we mentioned earlier, when every inclination of man's heart was only ever sinful in every way. I mean, that kind of very strong language in Genesis 6-5. It's bad. Sin has run its course and the Lord has let it spiral out so that we can look long and hard at it and we can see what the sin of Adam was and what it looks like. It looks really ugly. And then in this little con condensation of the big story, God comes in final judgment as will one day be the case. Even in 2 Peter 3, as we read for our word of exhortation today, the challenge to us is, hey, don't be like them. Don't think, oh, as it is today, it will forever be. If the Lord was going to act, why hasn't he acted? He hasn't come yet. Perhaps he will not come. Don't make that mistake. Look at the days of Noah when he came and he brought the flood and he brought his judgment down upon sin. He will bring judgment once more, but this time it will be fire. 
So be steadfast. Examine yourself. Pursue the Lord Jesus Christ because judgment is coming. And in the story of Noah, again, from Genesis 3 to Genesis 6, we get the whole story in a penultimate way. That, of course, is not the final judgment, but it is a picture of final judgment. It gives us an understanding of final judgment, that ours is a God who will judge the world. Yes, he said he will no longer do it by a flood, but he will bring final judgment upon the earth and all mankind will stand before him and be judged. And yet, Noah. Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah is given a commandment to build this ark, to build this boat by which his family, his offspring, will be saved. By those, those who are related to Noah will be spared. And they, they find safety and refuge in the ark and they're brought through the judgment, that final judgment that is coming. They're brought through that judgment, and they end up on the other side in a new creation. The end. That's the story. That's the whole story of the world right there. Fall, promise, lineages, judgment, deliverance, new creation. There it is. From Genesis 3 to Genesis 6, we get a microcosm of the whole story. And this short story, if you will, though of course it takes many, many years. I mean, Noah was 900 and something. So by historical standards, it takes time. But in the text, it all happens within a few chapters, chapter three to really chapter nine. Uh, we have the whole story of creation is meant to lay the tracks. It's meant to establish the narrative very early for us so that we understand the grand narrative that we are in. Narratives matter. The way you think about the story of the world, like what story are you living in, really, really matters. Right? We're, we're seeing it right now with people whose hair is on fire about the ending of the world because of global warming. Now, again, I'm not here to say what the science is on this or, or you know, what, I'm, I, that's not what this is for. But what you do see, when you see people like bear, you know, gluing themselves to trains in England, you know, they're blocking roadways because they want to make statements about carbon emissions. What drives people to that kind of behavior? I'll tell you the answer. A narrative. A story. They have a story about the world, about how it came to be and where it's going and what the factors are that's causing what. They have a narrative in their head about how the world works, and that narrative will drive them to action. That's why there's tears and there's cryings and there's, there's laying across roadways and gluing ourselves to train doors because there's a narrative. And the way you understand the world will affect what you value and what you pursue and what you spend your life doing. And Genesis 3 through 9 is a narrative. It's a short narrative to help lay the tracks for the grand narrative, to help us understand the story we are in. And if you believe, in fact, that final judgment by a holy God is coming... Not just that we're all going to be consumed because of global warming. Global warming, you know, again, the science of it, that's another story. That's not, I'm not mocking. I'm not saying anything about it. But what I am saying is if you think that's the way it's all going to go down, then we do everything we can to resist it. 
If you believe that the end of the story is cataclysmic judgment by a holy God, well, that's going to affect your life. That's going to affect your life. If you believe that there's a flood coming that's going to overwhelm the whole earth, then you know what you do? You get to be friends with Noah really fast. Really fast. And if you believe there's a final judgment of fire that's going to come upon all humanity, that we're going to pass through it, and only that which is in Christ will be sustained, then you get to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You put all your faith and your hope and your trust in him. These stories are meant to lay the tracks or lay the groundwork, build the habits, give us the basic fundamental narrative of the world and of the story that we're in. So that's the story as we get it. And I know you know it, but it's worth coming back and seeing it again in the story of Noah because it reminds us of the big story. Now, what about Christ? Christ is all through this story, but I want to, I just want to draw out three ways in which we see Christ. And I think if I gave you a pen and a paper and I said, let's just take the next 15 minutes and be quiet, and you start writing down where is Christ in this story, I think you'd come up with all three of these, perhaps, or at least one of the three, and one would be good. Instead of viewing the story of Noah merely as a guy who was up against crazy, a crazy situation, you know, generally when Noah is taught to our children, it's often taught as, hey, Noah was asked to do a really wild and crazy thing, right, build a big boat on dry land, and probably a lot of people made fun of him, and, but Noah persevered anyway, because you know he didn't know what was going on and everybody's laughing at him but you know they're not laughing now and you know and Noah is safe in the ark and they can't get in and and so when you are called to do really crazy stuff and when the Lord calls you to do things you don't understand then you shouldn't be bothered by the world laughing at you you know you should go ahead and do it because God's word is true and so forth now that is not wrong that is true it's just not the point of this story the point of this story is not so when God tells you to do crazy stuff you don't get, go ahead and do it even if they laugh at you. Okay, It's not a moral tale about being like Noah, though we should be like Noah. And so if God does call you to do crazy stuff and they're laughing at you, I do want to just say, I'm not, yes, do it. Do it. <laughs> don't, don't be thrown off by their laughter. So that is, that is a true point. It's just not the point, and it's not the point I'm going to make today. The point of this story is trust Jesus. <laughs> you know, like they say, this, the, the, the point of every uh, Sunday school lesson is Jesus. And I'm falling into that, not trap, but that truth that in this case, the story of Noah should be trust Jesus. Well, where is Jesus in this? Well, first, Jesus is Noah. Now, Noah's Noah. I'm not trying to say that this is mythological. Noah is Noah. Noah's a real guy who was really called to do a crazy thing and build a big boat and go get two of every animal. That must have been a challenge and get them on this boat. Noah had all kinds of challenges. Noah was a real guy. But for us, Noah is a lens to help us understand what Jesus is doing. Noah establishes the pattern of obedience, though he find Noah particularly finds grace in the eyes of the Lord because Noah deserved to be consumed in that flood as much as any of his neighbors. Noah was a sinner, right? The Lord didn't come select Noah because Noah just happened to be the one righteous guy of all of them. Noah's a sinner like the rest of them. But Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. Just as we considered last week, in Abram, in some sense, Abram finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abram is in a land of idolaters. 
out there in Ur, and the Lord comes to Abram and says, Abram, go, I'm going to make you a great nation, and you are going to be the means by which I bless all the other nations. Very similar to Noah. It could begin, and Abram found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Right? Why Abram? God's grace. Why Noah? God's grace. So Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. But what does Noah do? Noah obeys. The Lord does give Noah a radical thing to do. This is no easy feat to build this amazing ark, to go collect two of all the animals and secure them in this ark and have provisions for them and all these kinds of things. But Noah is obedient to the call of the Lord, and it is his obedience that brings about the salvation of his family. It's his obedience to this crazy call of the Lord to build this ark on dry ground amid the mocking neighbors, if in fact they were mocking. It was his obedience that brought about the salvation of his family. Now, the name Noah means giver of rest. Hence, I entitled the sermon today, The Giver of Rest. Noah is the provider of rest for his family. His family, while the judgment of God is literally raining down, Noah's family will rest. And not only will they rest in the ark, but they will rest on top of Mount Ararat, and they will rest in a new creation. They will find themselves in a renewed, purged, with a small p, because it's ultimately not. We'll get there in a second purged and renewed, Noah's family is given rest. And of course Noah is for us a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who in our call to worship today summons people and says to them, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I am the giver of rest. I am the ultimate Noah. Come and I will give rest to your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ that we ultimately find our rest. Our rest from our striving, but also our rest from the judgment of God that is coming. It is Jesus Christ by whose obedience we are saved. He is the obedient one. He is the one who builds the ark, if you will, that then becomes for us a house of salvation. It is by the obedience, the faithfulness of our greater Noah, it is by the obedience of our giver of rest that we are spared from the judgment that is coming. Jesus is, in fact, our Noah. And the point of the story of Noah, I think, is you need a guy like this. We need a champion. We need the obedient ark builder. Just as I say, the story of David and Goliath is not be like David. The point of the story of David and Goliath is you need a David. You need somebody who's going to fight giants for you. Because you can't, you can't beat them. You can't swim long enough to outdo the flood. You need an ark builder. You need a giver of rest. You need Noah. You need Jesus. The point of the story is we need one called by God, and indeed we have one in the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, Christ is our Noah, our giver of rest. But then secondly, Jesus is our ark. 
Right? Jesus is the ark itself. It's not just that Jesus builds this thing that spares us. Jesus is the thing that spares us. It's his obedience that makes it so that we can hide ourselves in him. The ark that he builds is his own righteousness. Again, we're not being allegorical. Noah built a real ark. But how does Jesus accomplish this for us? What is the ark that hides us and shelters us, that takes the beating, if you will, of the judgment waters so that we can be safe inside. It's Jesus himself. The New Testament tells us to clothe ourselves in him, to hide ourselves in him. That's what we sing about when we sing Rock of Ages. And granted, that's from the story of Moses atop uh, atop Mount Sinai, but the idea of hiding ourselves in him is also ark language. We shelter and find shelter in our refuge. Think of the Psalms. We sang Psalms today about the floodwaters rising up, and think about how many Psalms tell us to find our shelter in, the, in God. Well, how do you do that? And the answer is not fully revealed until we get to Jesus Christ and find out that it's only in him that we find refuge. He is our refuge. He's our strength. He's our bulwark. He's our shelter. It is Jesus Christ who takes the beating and bears the floodwaters. He's submerged, if you will, beneath the flood so that we in him pass safely through into a new creation. Think of the connection between this story and the story we looked at a couple weeks ago with the animal skins. Remember as, as Adam was being driven out of the land, out of uh, the garden, excuse me, he's being driven out of the garden and he's got his fig leaves covering him. And as he's exiting the land, the Lord then obviously slays an animal, takes those skins and covers his nakedness so that he can go out. And we talked about what was the image there? What was the message? What was the sermon being preached in that illustration? And you'll remember that place between Adam and God, between Adam and the tree of life, was an angel with a flaming sword. So that access back into the presence of God would only come through a flaming sword, which means you don't dare go there. And if you do, you're going to end up dead. Because you're going to have to walk through the flaming sword of this angel. But as they were pushed out and the flaming sword placed between them and God, they are given animal skins. And what do the animal skins say? They say, this is a picture of your access back in. For the animal will take the sword for you. The animal has been slain by the sword for you so that you wearing these clothes will have access back through. For when the angel sees these clothes, right, as we talked about in that great hymn, he will sheathe his sword. Where the paschal blood is poured, death's dark angel sheathes his sword. Judgment's already poured out. I see you wearing it. You are hidden in this animal. You're hidden underneath the skin, the righteousness, the blood of the lamb. Death's dark angel sheathes his sword. And you have access into his presence. Well, here the same image is being done in the ark. You try to meet God. You try to enter into new creation outside the ark. You will not prevail. 
There is no way from here, this fallen, sinful, totally depraved, uh, depraved world that we live in, there is no way from here to there, except through the floodwaters. And if you are outside the ark, it will consume you. Just like the flaming sword will slay you if you try to make your way back into the presence of God apart from the Lamb of God. There is no way from here to there except in that ark. Except clothed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Except hidden in him. For he will take the beating of the flood. He will bear the swing of the sword. So that you can rest in him. And make your way to a new creation. This is why Paul says, Don't you know, brothers and sisters, that all of you who have been baptized, have been baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, clothe yourselves with him. Clothing. Baptism. Right? It's in our baptism that we are clothed, symbolically, with the Lord Jesus Christ and hidden in him so that we pass through the waters of judgment into a new creation. So, the story tells us we need a Noah. It also tells us we need an ark. And in the story of Christ, Christ is all in all. He is Noah, and he, he is the ark, and then finally he is the new creation to which we come. Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus doesn't just get us to heaven and drop us off and say, hope you enjoyed the ride. Jesus is heaven. The Lord our God is, as Abram said, our very great reward. He is not a means to the end. He is the means and the end. If any man be in Christ, Paul says, new creation. If any man be in Christ, new creation. To be in Christ is to be in the new creation, for Jesus Christ is himself the new creation. And hence, the wonderful picture of his baptism. Hopefully, we were awake today in the reading of God's word and should have made a very quick connection. Rarely do we read texts in which both of them have a dove. But in the story of Noah, the ark is going out and he sends out the dove to see if, in fact, new creation has arrived. It comes back empty. He waits seven days, sends it out again, and the dove alights itself on the new creation, right? It, it couldn't find any place to set its feet the first time around. He sends it out seven days later, and it finds a place to set down upon and comes back with a symbol, with a, uh, a token of the new creation. And then, in Jesus' baptism, Jesus goes where? Into the water. He's submerged under the water as an act of repentance for our sins, bearing all the filth, all the guilt of our sins. Jesus is submerged underneath the flood and then comes up out of the water, a new creation. And what happens? A dove. A dove descends upon him. 
the picture being made clear for us as to what is happening here. This isn't just, oh, Jesus going through a ritual. Okay, look, I've got to do this. This is part of the checks I got to check off in my list of things. It is that he needs to go and repent. But who's he repenting for? Again, he's our ark. He's, he's bearing the ugliness of old creation and being submerged under the judgment waters of God, repenting on our behalf. So that as he comes out, he comes out a new creation. And the dove descends upon him. So that now, if any man be in Christ, there is new creation. Jesus is not a means to the end. He is the means and the end. He bears all of our sin and he deals with it to the fullest so that in him all things are made new. Now, the story of Noah... You know, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. We didn't even deal with the rainbow and so forth because that, that's, that's a sermon for another time, right? The God's wonderful promises and so forth. And we could talk about some of this in Sunday school. What we're going to do is we're going to have the, the, uh, the congregational meeting and we're going to hold that election. We'll deal with one other issue. And then you, you can be dismissed and then we'll just run the clock out on Sunday school. But we'll, for those of you who would like to stay, and so if, even if you're not a member, if you'd like to stay, that, that's fine for the congregational meeting. You just wouldn't vote. And, but also if you'd like to stay for Sunday school, you may. But, uh, and we'll give you a chance to leave so it's not awkward where you have to go while I'm talking. We'll give you a chance to bolt out of here. Um, but we can, we can address some of these other issues. I particularly want to think of the, ver- the, the words that our text, our Old Testament text began with today, and the Lord remembered Noah. Ooh, there's stuff to dive into there. I want to dive into it. I don't have time in the sermon, but we'll do it in Sunday school. And the Lord remembered Noah. Um, and it ends with the story of God then establishing his covenant with Noah, reaffirming what he said to Adam, go be fruitful, multiply, and so forth. He gives the rainbow in the sky so that he says, and again, remembrance, so we'll have some fun with this, because in the, in the rainbow, he places the rainbow in the sky so that when it appears, God will remember his covenant promises. The rainbow is not there for you to remember. The rainbow is there so that by God might remember the promises he gave. What, the, what, is, what does that mean? How do we do God remembering? Would he possibly forget? What's that? We're going to have to, we'll, we'll, we'll play with that a little bit in Sunday school. So we know that part of the story. But then the story has a sad ending. Because we're told, and Noah was a man of the soil. And from the soil, he grew grapes. And with the grapes, he made wine. And with the wine, he got drunk. And with the drunkenness, he got naked. And then his son saw his nakedness and exposed it to his brothers and all, all, you know, it all falls apart. And Noah gets up from his drunken stupor and he's cursing his sons and the whole thing falls apart. And this is the pattern of these Old Testament stories. It's like, okay, there's the grand story and we see it and we say, oh, yay, here's our champion. Here's our giver of rest. Here's our guy. Here's our deliverer. He's going to bring us into new creation. Hooray. And then he's drunk. And he's cursing his sons. And his sons are exposing their father's shame. And we go, oh. And then we're going to get Abram, like we thought about last week. And he's going to be the guy. And then he's going to sin with Hagar. We're going to, oh. And then we're going to get the next guy. Oh. (laughs) And the whole story of the Old Testament is, yeah, oh. Is this the one? No. Again and again and again. But the pattern is being set for us, but we're finding out, but not him, but not him. 
but not him, but not him, until the day comes when John says, behold, him, the Lamb of God that takes away sin in the world, the Noah that truly gives rest, the ark that bears the judgment, the new creation that finally brings us home. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's the story we're in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Noah, our champion, our giver of rest. We thank you for his obedience, an obedience which we could never provide, but an obedience which provided an ark, a safe haven, a refuge for us in the storm. For he was submerged under the flood of your judgment on our behalf that we through him might have rest and be brought into a new creation. Oh, we thank you for that. Set that narrative in our heads. Remind us how desperately we need Noah, our greater Noah, even Jesus Christ. Remind us how crucial it is for us to be in the ark and not on our own, self-sustaining, outside, thinking perhaps we can navigate our way through these judgment waters. And give us a hunger, we pray, for the new creation. Give us a hunger for that new world which our Lord Jesus Christ brings us into and is himself, that we might long and tr- long for and treasure our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <laughs>